0: This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Start at Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. On this episode, I'm going to be introducing you to Nick Dennis, the CEO and founder of Fit Degree. A management software platform for fitness and wellness businesses. He's a genuine, down to earth person that tends to be intensely passionate about his crafts. He is an accidental entrepreneur. He's got a BS in mathematics and keeps more than just the numbers in line. By day, he keeps Fit Degree moving forward, and in his free time, he enjoys lifting all the heavy things and playing with his fur babies, Bellamere and Nico Robin. This particular episode is near and dear to my heart because Fit Degree was one of my very first clients as a fractional CMO. I know that you're going to learn so much from Nick in this episode, and I hope that you've got some really amazing takeaways that you can then turn around and implement in your own business. Let's dive right in.
1: Thanks for having me today, Sean. I'm happy to be the guest of the day. And uh, sure, we'll dive right in. And my favorite word to use to introduce myself in this world is an accidental entrepreneur. I had no idea what the word entrepreneur meant when I started doing what I was doing. I had no idea where I would be five years from now, but I have absolutely no regrets. And I feel like, you know, it was a part of my DNA to be an entrepreneur. Um, And when I think entrepreneur, you know, I don't necessarily think what most people might think when they do it as a business owner, I think of more about it as a problem solver. And I think about it as how I can provide value specifically for me, the fitness industry. So that was how it started and where it still is, is we're in the fitness industry, what I do for the fitness industry is different from where we started. But that was really important to me to solve problems and provide value in the fitness space.
0: Yeah, but let's go back farther than that. So being completely honest, Nick was one of my first clients when I started my fractional CMO business. And I can attest to the whole accidental entrepreneur thing. <laughs> but your whole story of how you started fit degree in college, it's really inspiring. You are a very young CEO. And you've always had a real talent for it, because being a CEO isn't just about coming up with that idea. You know, you had to build a team and manage a team and make some really hard decisions in terms of growing this brand. But let's start at the beginning because you came up with the idea for fit Degree while you were still in college, and it didn't look anything then. Like it <laughs> no, it now. did not.
1: Yeah, so back in college. The original story, the OG story is that, you know, I worked at our college rec center and there was an icebreaker activity. And this is why I say accidental entrepreneur and problem solver, because this all started with an icebreaker as a rec center employee orientation week where they asked, how do we get more people into the rec center? And I said, you know, it's really simple. People like to go to the rec center with their friends. When I went up to the weight room, you know, very rarely were there people by themselves. Most of the people had a group of friends, you know, more than two with them. It was like social hour. So I said, if you really want to get people in the door, you have to find a way for them to connect with others at the rec center. They don't have to be existing friends because I made a lot of my friends in the gym. So I knew that it wasn't uncommon or it wouldn't be weird for me to go on some type of app to find people of similar skill level or similar fitness goals as me and meet up with them at the rec center. So that was where the original idea started of how do I help people find a fitness partner on their college campus? And I knew in my head this could be expanded outside of college, but it was really let's start there. Let's help people at Rowan University. Find their first fitness partner. If we can do that, we can bring it to other colleges and we can bring it to other gyms and see where it goes.
0: And this is where your co-founder came in.
1: Yes, and same thing. Being resourceful is another quality. I don't like to be too arrogant on what I think I'm good at, but resourcefulness was one of them. So I entered simultaneously when I came up with this idea. Someone said, "You know, there's a business plan competition. You should join." And I, you know, said, "Sure." It's seven thousand five hundred bucks. Maybe I could do a lot with 7,500 bucks. Little did I know how little you could do with 7,500 (laughs) bucks. But, you know, the idea was there that I could do a lot. I'm happy I was that naive because I said the best way to win this is I'm going to need some type of prototype. So I walked into our computer sciences department. They had a senior engineering course that was, um, it was called Senior Project. And essentially, the seniors of the computer science department got to pick a project of their choice for the semester, build it out, and basically show off to the rest of the class. And, you know, that's how you were determined of not just your idea, but how well could you put it together. And if you didn't get it so far, what would you have done if you had more time, et cetera, et cetera. I walked into that class and asked the professor if I could pitch my idea for any students that didn't have their own project already. I went in there, I pitched my idea I found a lead developer. His name's Daniel Reed. He's my business partner till this day. And neither of us knew we were going to be business partners at that moment, but he needed a project. He thought I had a good idea. He had some experience building apps before. I was just happy anyone was willing to build my prototype. And we went off to the races. So he helped me whiteboard it out. He helped me start to build the prototype. And yeah, I was really lucky that just going through that business plan competition forced me to be resourceful to get a prototype built. And I then met my, you know, I think we're coming up on five or six years of being business partners at this point.
0: Yeah. So fast forward, you won this competition. You won some other grants and money from the college and you graduated with a degree in mathematics, but (laughs) you started out with your first job fresh out of college as CEO.
1: Yes, yes. I don't know what CEO of a two-person team means, but I you know, found out, like you mentioned, that it's much more than just the idea. And I think the leadership aspect of it did come more natural to me than it would most.
0: Yeah, definitely. And talk to me about that. What does it mean to be CEO of a two-person team? Because I think <laughs> when we think startups, right? We're thinking somebody, a team that's got lots of money and it's growing fast, but all startups have... This starting point. So yes. whether it's just the CEO or just the CEO and one or two other team members, what does your job look like at that point in the game?
1: That is a great question for context of that point in the game because I think the job of the CEO changes at every point in the game. You have two people. I like to think that you are, um, you know, you're the get shit doneer You're the GSD. You got it. You have to create results. There is no delegating work.
0: Shout out. Wild rumor right there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah, that one thing I could take away from them is the GSD mindset. Because it's the reality that you know, when you look up to these business mentors, they talk about um delegating. You always gotta delegate so you can get more done. Well, when you're a two person team and all you have is an idea, and at that point seventy five hundred dollars and even when we got the grant money for a hundred thousand dollars still wasn't that much. It was enough to pay us to work for a year or two. And um That was it. We had to execute. We had to get ideas down. So it was a lot of market research. You know, I walked around the college campus trying to ask people what they would want when we pivoted the idea to college rec centers and providing a registration platform for them where people can help find their friends and invite them to class. It was a lot of market research of talking to the college rec center directives.
0: Stop there for a second. Yep. Why did you pivot? I think that's so important for startup owners to hear startup founders, because we talk about pivoting when things aren't working. So how do you know that things just aren't working because you don't have the resources? And how do you know that you need to pivot this because your original vision isn't a viable product?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. So you are the get shit done in the beginning. But one thing you always maintain as a CEO is the visionary, the strategist, you have to always be thinking about 10 moves ahead of where you're actually at. And while we were in the middle of getting shit done, I mean, we were at tape, we were doing table booths, we were stand, you know, standing anywhere we could, we were putting up posters and anything we could. I was also in the nitty gritty of it. And I saw the writing on the wall that I don't think we have the resources to pull off an app that will be fun enough for people to want to find a fitness partner. It realized that we were very under-resourced and that the idea of just connecting one another wasn't enough. People weren't going to have enough motivation to use it. We were going to need leaderboards and we were going to need social social media tactics and direct messaging and all these things we weren't going to have. And when we rolled out just the connection piece, it didn't go off to a hot start. And when I think of a business-to-consumer app, um, you know, I think of Snapchat, I think of Instagram, I think of uh, right. Facebook was even a little mature by the, a lot of these apps started popping up. You need a lot of money and a lot of resources to build a fun app that people want to tell their friends about. And then it's going to spread like wildfire. And if it doesn't spread like wildfire, it's it's, it's not going to take off. So we we had to look at ourselves and say, you know, what have we learned in the past year? Where can we provide value elsewhere? And we decided that, you know, as a software company, it'd be a lot more manageable to go business to business. You'd be able to make revenue from day, not day one, as far as building the software. But once the software was built, you know, it's very straightforward process to make money. You approach a business, you solve a problem for them, they pay you on a monthly or annual basis. When you're doing a business to consumer app, when you talk about monetizing it, you want to just say ad space, right? Because that's what everyone that's had success with Snapchat and Instagram and all the likes of those have done. They put ad space, right. but you need not hundreds of thousands; you need millions of users for ad space <laughs> to be valuable. And that just yeah. wasn't going to happen for two kids out of South Jersey, you know, with a hundred thousand dollars of investment. And we realized, hey. Let's go to B2B with the way our minds work and the the way we can build software. We think that B2B is a better place for us. And it'll be a lot easier to get to a point of profitability, um, take on new investors, things like that.
0: But you made another pivot. You didn't end in college rec.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's just thinking that 10 steps ahead. We built this registration platform. We kept our core of being social and helping people invite each other to class. And our first summer, we added 15 colleges and we thought, wow, this is it. We made it. There's no turning back from here. So the next year we got more funding because you know we added 15 colleges. That was a big deal. Yeah. We added and they were all on annual contracts. They were all pretty happy. So it made sense for us to start going to their conferences we essentially invested money into advertising. And for college rec centers, advertising meant going to their conferences, be an exhibitor, trying to get in presentations, things like that. So year two, with 15 clients under our belt, we went to four conferences in the fall, and we were planning for the large annual conference in the spring. And before we even got to the annual conference in the spring, I saw the writing on the wall again. We had 15 clients, We met with maybe 100 people across the four regional conferences in the fall, and no one was jumping for joy. No one was singing to the heavens that we solved their problems. No one was excited to immediately implement it, you know, ahead of the summertime when they normally do. And I just thought, you know, we got 15. This might be the only 15 that are actually interested in the product. And the sales cycle was so long and clunky. I remember when I already kind of had my decision set that we were moving on from college rec centers. We were talking to a college in the spring and they said that, you know, it might not be this year or next year. It might take two years to get the director of the rec center on your side. And when you're charging...
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah when you're
1: charging 200 bucks a month 2400 bucks a year you don't have two years to wait you have about three weeks before you move on from that lead and that's what we carried over into our third pivot the role of the ceo is i was in the nitty-gritty i was doing the sales i was doing the customers work. pretty much anything i could to let daniel do his thing and build the software was what i was doing and i saw so you did
0: everything else (laughs)
1: Yeah, everything else. There's a lot that comes with software and there's a lot that comes with running a business and everything else. So I tried to do everything I possibly could so that he could be left alone and build the software. And it was there that I saw, you know, this isn't going to work. We're not going to become profitable selling to colleges. What do we have to do next? And, um, you know, luckily we weren't far away from building a similar platform with additional functionality in this, you know, boutique fitness space.
0: But there was an aha moment, wasn't there? You didn't just say, oh, I think this would be perfect for yoga studios. You had, you know, this big aha moment, right?
1: Yeah. So a lot of people like to look at Apple and Steve Jobs and say, you know, the people don't know what they want. I got to build it before they know what they want. That's Apple. And that's their thing. And that's great. But that's not the other 99% of businesses. The aha moment for us was a yoga studio owner complaining about their software That was a multi-billion dollar operation and they were complaining about how clunky it was, how expensive it was. And then you go online and you look at reviews and she was not alone. There were many, 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 many many people complaining that I knew if we got 20% of those complainers, we were in business.
0: Like that. If we get the 20% of complainers, then we can make a profitable business <laughs> off of that.
1: Yeah. What world does that exist in? And that was really the aha moment of what am I doing trying to create something that I don't know what people want? I mean, I'm trying to manage their business. Let me go to the people that are complaining and want change and let me deliver change for them. And that was what really accelerated us into the boutique fitness space is that there were a lot of complainers. They're looking for change and i knew that you know we could be that change for them
0: i love that so let's talk a little bit about growth because i didn't come on board until year 3 and i distinctly yes. remember this i tell everybody about this by the <laughs> way i distinctly remember at some point we had been working together 4 months 5 months 6 months and we were having a conversation about the cmo role And you told me that I was a luxury hire, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. We have to build the software before we can sell it, right? Like there's all these other things that have to happen. And in some ways, you're totally right. And in other ways, I just wanted to be like, you have to market before you're ready. (laughs) So (laughs) we had that whole conversation. And what did that look like for you? How did you decide that the time was right to start investing in the growth?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I definitely think others may disagree with me. But the way I <laughs> thought of thinking of, a, of more of a lean startup, and not just marketers would disagree, I'm sure there's other CEOs that would disagree with me. But when you're operating in a lean budget, you just have to make sure there's a happy client before you go out and market. Mm. And that was what I thought is if I can't knock down doors, or get referrals or do anything on my own, to get as Nick Dennis, my you know personable self, if I can't get 10 people on this dang platform, what am I doing? What am I doing investing advertising dollars into it? I have to be able to justify this because it's a lot of overhead to start marketing. You gotta pay someone immediately to not just start advertising, but learn about your brand, learn about the culture you're trying to set, learn about your messaging, learn about your industry. So that's time and money that out the door. Then you have to actually put money into the creatives that you're going to put out there. Then you have to research and find the channels you're going to use. And I think you remember that, you know, it was not even probably eight months after you came on that we started advertising. And it still took us three or four months to figure out what channel we were going to go through. It took us years to stop going to conferences and I think COVID really accelerated our thought process of what are we doing going to conferences? We spend $10,000, come back with 50 leads and none of them convert. When what would happen if we put $10,000 into Facebook ads? It's clearly that's working. Let's keep doing that. So, you know, it was a lot to say I had to prove to myself and maybe it was a personal thing I had to do. Prove to myself that I get 10 people on the platform that were happy and satisfied so that I knew once I open up the advertising floodgates, I'm actually going to have something to offer these people that come through the funnel and not just say, you know, coming soon and get their hopes up.
0: Hey, everybody, it's Shauna. I just wanted to take a quick break from this episode to remind you that there's lots of good stuff happening over at StartupRenegades.com. First, you can enter your email address, join the community and get notified of discounts and specials that our featured founders are giving exclusively to the Startup Renegades community. Also, get notified when we have founder firesides where we put the founders in the hot seats and give you the opportunity to ask them the questions in a one-on-one environment. Plus, you can join the Startup Renegades Business Workshop. This is a four-week accelerator for founders who need custom strategy, actionable next steps, and a true support system in order to scale. Is that you? If so, come join us at StartupRenegades.com and let's get started. So to be perfectly honest, I know the stage that you were at. Software wise, when I came on board, and I don't think that you made the wrong decision. Like you have to have <laughs> a product, now, but you have to be able to start marketing before you feel 100% ready because that yes. whole progress over perfection thing, perfection isn't a thing. So if we're not failing forward, then we're just staying still and we can't be making moves on growth. It's so essential. So I want to take a step back here because you beat me to my next question. I want to ask all the founders, what was the thing? What was the thing that helped you scale? I think that's so important for people to understand. And when I asked you that, you said it was the advertising. But I remember advertising was not great for us in the beginning. We went through some iterations. So talk to me about why you think that was the best strategy for us to start scaling in the beginning.
1: Yeah. So when I think scalability, I think of creating a repeatable model. Something that can consistently be done month over month, quarter over quarter, year over year. And so we need to start advertising simply because, I mean, the internet's a huge place. There is no build it and they will come world. Um, I don't know if it's been that way for 10 years at this point. So you do need to advertise or else people are not going to find out about you unless you're just in that magical 1% of businesses that grow strictly by word of mouth. You know, you got to start advertising, especially when you have competition in the space. And we had to try, like I mentioned before, a lot of different advertising methods. We were going to conferences. We were going in publications. We were paying to be on podcasts. We were doing our own podcast. Well, we were doing Google AdWords. We were doing directories and listings, things like that. And the one that seemed to be the consistent success was Facebook and Instagram advertising. We had a simple funnel that was working. It's grown in complexity over the months and years. But for the most part, Facebook and Instagram was a straightforward funnel, and it consistently had the most success. So I think it took us about maybe three months, three to six months to drop AdWords and drop Google AdWords and drop directories completely from our advertising budget. And then it really took COVID to slap us in the face and say, oh, we don't need to go to conferences anymore. Let's take that out of our budget. And if we're not going to go to conferences for two years, let's just pretend we're never going to go to conferences again. And then I was able to build a financial model that said, if I put this much money into Facebook and Instagram, I know from 18 months of data, I'm going to get this number of leads in the door. And if I don't, something's broken. But for the most part, over 18 months, it has shown that if I put $100, dollars or i will just say, at this point right now it's about you know $600 i'm going to get those 10 leads that i need to get and that was the scalability aha moment was if i put money out i know how many leads i'll get in now you start bringing that down the funnel all right i get this many people in the door how many people show up to a demo out of the people that show up to a demo how many of them convert to a pilot out of the people that convert to a pilot how many of them turn into paying clients so really tracking that journey of when i put a dollar out there you know what is the final dollar amount it takes to get a client? And now you have the scalability model because you can repeat it over and over and over again.
0: I think that's so important for people to hear because there is so much pushback from people when you tell them that they need to advertise. They want to do it organically, but it's not easy. It's not that it can't be done, but it's not easy anymore. So when you're talking about actually turning a profit, not just generate revenue, but turning a profit and scaling that, advertising move that fast on organic channels.
1: Yes. I think that's a one really good point is you can't move fast. And at some point when you're building the product, you do have to move slow. But now we're up to 10 team members. 10 team yeah. members cost a lot <laughs> to keep on payroll. So we actually, in part of our financial model, you'll like this a lot. Part of our financial model, we had a low... ad we had four models that we output it. And we said, depending on how much, the two variables were how much we spend on ads and how well we convert. And no matter how well we convert it, more ad spend got us to profitability faster. And it also required us to need less overall cash to get to profitability. Because when you start expanding your team and we had no choice, we had, like I explained that whole process. We need someone advertising. We need someone selling. Mm We need someone onboarding, and we need someone supporting on top of the people that are continuing to build the product. We needed all these team members to put out significant ad dollars, but like I said, ten people cost a lot of money. The only way we're going to get to profitability or even exist another year is if we start putting dollars into advertising and really start testing our limits of how well can we convert. Because if we didn't advertise, or even if we were conservative with advertising, we would run out of cash and we would not have the results to show our investor. Hey, keep believing in us. It's going to happen. Yeah. Maybe five years from now. How about next year? Why can't you turn this around by next year?
0: So fit degree has an amazing investor. That's not a bad strategy to have for growth, but I don't think that it's as easy for everybody to find an amazing investor like fit degree has had, but let's talk about the team for a second because I'm going to throw a wrench in your interview here because I know Fit Degree so personally. I think advertising has been a huge part of it. I know because I run it. But then <laughs> building the team has actually been a really big part of our growth. Because if we go all the way back to those complainers, right? Yes. Those complainers, they had very specific issues with these big companies that they were using for software. And one of them was that they weren't being heard. They had a horrible customer service experience. Yes. So investing in the team, I think, has been a huge part of the growth because we needed the advertising especially to get that original core group of customers on board, but then building the team to give those customers such an amazing experience is what exploded it. Because now I know that we took on some core team members probably around this time last year and then slowly started building. But right now, our word of mouth referrals are equal to, if not more, our advertising leads.
1: Yes. And I think, you know, advertising has its role where it's keeping us top of mind in these conversations. But because of the software we've created, because of the team members we've added, the customer journey we've created, those organic leads are starting to come in at the same rate of those paid leads, people that have never heard of us before. So I do think the advertising keeps us top of mind. But when you talk about the role of a CEO, and at what point in the game, at some point you go from, you know, the get shit doneer, to the team builder, to the, okay, I actually can delegate this out because we do have the traction to justify the hiring of these specialty positions. You know, we have one person doing demos. We have one person doing onboarding. We have a couple people doing support, where when it started, I was doing, me and my other business partner, Dan Berger, were doing the sales and then the onboarding and then the support. And you can't really do more selling when you are trying to onboard and support people. And you look like an asshole when you're not supporting people because you're trying to sell. So it was really important to identify those positions, break up the funnel, hire those specialty employees, and also preach to them at each point, you know, how important it is to give clients a ton of your attention, be genuine in your feedback. I'd rather take on less clients and give them a great experience than try to add many clients. You know, like one thing we were debating was us being a self-service platform. Right, because if people sign up and they onboard themselves, you don't need those team members I just talked about. But that's not the kind of industry where we were in. We're in this industry where people hate the idea that they have to use software, but they know they need to use software to be a successful business. We had to be as personable as possible as a software company could be. And I think when people think about the type of business they are, they think uh, they're a technology business. They build technology. Well, no, you're a software as a service. You're a SaaS business. The two S's are capitaled in SaaS because the service is just as important as the software. And yeah. I think that's where we've been able to shine and be very different, not just among the elephant in the room, but also our competitors. Um, there's an obvious and distinct difference when you come onto to FitDegree because uh, we tell you in the sales demo and we follow it up in the onboarding, we want you to be a product expert before you even launch. I mean, how many software businesses are saying, I want to invest my time in educating you to be a product expert so that when you launch, you're confident. And I'm not going to take your money until that point comes. Not many software companies out there are trying to do it
0: that way. I think it's just, it speaks to a different way of doing business. And when we think about startups, we think about high growth, right? Like fast scalability. And that's great. But there is some serious value in growing slower, growing more stably, and making sure that you have all your pieces in place. Because if we had a high churn rate right now, that would kill us as a business. But our churn rate is incredibly low. Not only is it incredibly low, but... We have the best brand advocates ever because people feel like they're a part of the family. They're not sitting on the computer trying to talk to a bot. They're not sitting on the phone for hours waiting for a customer service rep. They know their person on the team and they can email them if they need help. They know that they can go to the community if they have a non-software issue. They can go to the Facebook group and they can talk to other people who are super, super supportive. It may be a slower growth model, but it's a more stable growth model. And not many brands can say that they have brand advocacy at that level.
1: I agree. And I think you hinted at it before. I think getting a strong and understanding investor is really, really key because our investor did have the money to allow me to throw gasoline on what I thought was a fire, but it truly wasn't. And instead (laughs) he gave us small tranches of cash every milestone we hit. So we continue to build our foundation stronger and stronger. And when COVID hit and businesses had to look at all the softwares they had they looked at us and they realized they needed us because we weren't you know, straight out of his mouth was we didn't create superficial roots we created real genuine roots into the business not only were we their software it also felt like we were their business partner and it showed during COVID that the only businesses we lost we didn't lose any to competition we only lost businesses to unfortunately going out of business um, passive churn and we actually had an explosion in new clients because go back to that brand advocacy, they saw how hard we tried to adapt our software to COVID related needs. And they went out and started referring us. I think I looked at the other the number the other day, 13% of our clients are from referrals. And the global average is only 2.3%. And to be honest, when I looked at that 13%, I was a little disappointed. I thought it should be more. I (laughs) thought it could be more. I thought we could do better. And a little pat on the back when I saw the global average was 2.3, 2.5%. You know, we're way ahead of the game. But, you know, even before we got on this call, we talked about a referral strategy. How do we make it fun for our clients to do the work to build referrals? Because they know it, we know it. Referrals are the key to growing your business at scale. But going back, you know, you have to advertise to make people aware of who you are. I hope that we'll continue advertising, but the advertising is not going to grow and grow and grow and grow. The idea is hopefully at one point it levels off and you're getting referrals and these other sources of organic leads.
0: Yeah, you have to invest in getting those first customers, those first clients, so you can build brand advocates. Because if you don't have a strong enough foundation, if there's nobody there in the first place, then the referral model doesn't work. But let's step back for a second, because I want to talk about this human element in business. You're talking about what you did. What did you do for clients of the Fit Degree platform when COVID hit?
1: Yeah, so we had to, we had to almost go back to that market research stage and understand how has your business been affected? What do you need to accomplish right now? You know, one of those things is this went virtual. So we needed to immediately find a way to automate the distribution of sending out a live stream link such as Zoom. So that was the first feature we built right away and we were first to market with it. And I think our cost per lead went down to below $20 for the month of April and May when it normally sits around 70 75 because we were the first to market to build it. We got client testimonials of how amazing it worked, how well it solved their business problem, and it was a great way to get leads. So that was one way immediately, but just keeping that thought process of... Um, You know, I still sit in on all of the bug meetings we have and I sit on on the product development meetings and I'll always sit on those because how else are you going to hear about what your clients need if you're not on the ground floor with the people that are talking to them the most? So I think really understanding your clients needs as the environment continues to change and make sure you're building those features um, that come with it. An example of another feature we built was Simple concept. These are fitness studios that have classes. They have cancellation policies. They have cancellation policies if you don't show up to class or you cancel within a few hours of class. Well, then they need a cancellation policies that differed from their in-studio. They needed virtual cancellation policies. Most platforms have it. So it's just one thing across the board. We had to find a way for different classes that have different cancellation policies. And it wasn't a sexy feature to build, but it was what our client's not what they want it, what they need it in this time to continue to build a successful business. And we listened, we reacted, we built it, we got it out. And now we're getting feedback on the feature to see if we're done with that feature, or if we can move on to the next thing that they're talking about. So I think it's just so important to really listen to your client base. If you're in the space we're in, which is management software, what our clients could leave at any moment to go to our competition.
0: That's so true. And just being on the ground floor with the people you serve is so essential for founder, CEO, for most roles. So I want to pull back again for a second here because I think that you're selling yourself short. I think being on the ground with the customers is so important for any role, but you did something that was very human centric and not business centric during that time. You stopped payments for people.
1: Yes. Yeah. So that's a great point. You know, too much I'm thinking about being on the ground floor, trying to listen to our clients and how that impacts product development. But you're right. The one thing we did do is we noticed that revenue was down across the board for all businesses, let alone our industry. And we found that, you know, our clients were having to freeze memberships, drop memberships, et cetera. So we decided to heavily discount our revenue for the entire second quarter. Um, COVID hit in February, March. We had the lockdown by about March 15th in the United States. With Between March 15th and April 1st, we said, hey, the entire second quarter, we're going to discount the software heavily. We want to make sure you guys make it through. And we know we can't solve everything for you, but here's somewhere where we can make a direct and immediate impact. And it was received so well. And it wasn't meant for the results that happened, right? Our clients were ecstatic. They were appreciative. It probably drove more referrals. It probably helped us with our ad spend because people were talking about scoring. But
0: it kept them going.
1: It kept them going. And that was the reason we did it. It was the reason we did it was to keep them going. All the other things I just talked about were a result of us being, like you mentioned, a human-oriented business. We are a service business that serves other businesses and uh you know it would be ridiculous to charge them at full price when they got hit the hardest as a brick and mortar business that wasn't able to have people in their studio and uh yeah. one thing that never even went public because there was no need for it to go but uh strategically i planned on raising our prices in april 2020 and at the latest october 2020 and that right. was before covid existed and that was the plan and that was going to help us get to profitability faster because, you know, higher prices, less clients and um, something we still haven't done. We're in February of 2021 at this point, and we still haven't raised our prices because it wouldn't be fair to the industry. And uh, I'm not going to point any fingers, but there are some of our competitors that have still raised prices and have not been human oriented in this process. But, you know, I still do want to raise prices Because of the natural way of software goes, prices generally get raised every year.
0: Raising prices is just a strategic choice that you have to make for the life cycle, for the longevity of the business. Things like inflation happen. But to your point, for this specific instance, it really is just about being human-centered. And you knew what they needed, You know, definitely some of the bells and whistles and parts of the product, but they needed some relief. And I don't think many software companies can say that's ever something they've offered or have thought to offer their customers.
1: And you said it too: raising prices is a strategic move. Well, the strategic move of 2020 was to not only not raise prices to keep prices stable and provide a relief period to help them keep their feet on the ground. And uh, we didn't lose a client in the entire second quarter. And if maybe we were able to solve COVID a little bit quicker, we may have never lost a client. We didn't end up losing clients due to COVID until September. And at that point it was just, you know, any relief we provided them wouldn't have been enough at that point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. And it just, it really stands out to me for you as a founder and the team that you've built and the values around your brand and how important that is for any startup.
1: And talk about the team and the culture. When I said that, yeah, no one even hesitated or said, how would this affect my pay or how is this and that? And, you know, everyone knew they weren't going to be getting the raises or bonuses that we thought we may have gotten prior to COVID. Everyone was happy on board with the relief we were providing our clients. So, yeah, it's really important to me to have the team on board when I make a decision like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. So tell me, you, you have been a founder Since college, I always joke, you know, you didn't have one of those like real post-college jobs. You just went straight to CEO. What do you think that startup founders really need to know right now?
1: Oof, what do they really need to know? I think at the end of the day, you're a visionary and strategist at your core, but your role changes at every stop of the way. And what you think a CEO is at scale, and I'm not even at scale, but what I see coming is not what you thought you were signing up for. I mean, the other (laughs) week we were converting team members from 1099s to W2s and I was doing business registrations in various states across the country. And, you know, what am I doing here? I talked about selling. I talked about supporting. I talked about pricing and here I am doing business registration. So I think uh, knowing that, you know, you're a business owner, the CEO role is there, but you own a business at the end of the day, it's gonna come down to a lot of team recruitment. It's gonna come down to a lot of team building. It's gonna come down to a lot of culture setting. And uh, you know, if you're still selling your software at a 1,000 clients or you're still building your software at 1,000 clients, then you're not being a CEO. Um, you're being that role of the salesperson. You're being that role of the software developer. At some point, you need to, once you're able to afford the employees, your job is to step back and set your team up for success um, at every step of the way. And that's what I think the scalable role of a CEO is constantly setting your team up for success. And the challenges vary, you know, at every stop of the game, every point in the game.
0: So we're coming to the end now. And this is the startup. Renegades podcast. So Renegades are rebels. What does being a startup renegade mean to you?
1: Oof, that's a great question. I think it's, uh like you said, being a rebel going against the norm, something we did with our pricing we just talked about at Nauseam of, you know, that's not something people would normally do. But no one writ the rules. no one writ the rules for us, so we could do whatever we want and I do see the cons of not having a traditional post college job because there's a lot of structural things I don't know about that my team members tell me about as we get to each step. But I also think the fun part of not having any experience with a structured job is I get to make the rules every step of the way. So if I think this makes sense, I don't have to worry about if people have done it for years and years before us. I can say this is how we're doing it today and we can move forward with that. So I think, yeah, it's being that rebel and doing things the way you think they make sense and not how they've been done.
0: All right. So, Nick, where can we find you?
1: So you can find me uh, on Instagram at nick.fitdegree. You can always shoot me a personal email at nick@fitdegree.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn or, you know, request a demo and you'll find your way to me eventually.
0: That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, You can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade.